This week's episode is about Japanese internment. It's about a part of Japanese internment that I think a lot of people gloss over or forget to think about or don't want to think about. It's about religion and religious discrimination. Uh, I talked to Duncan Ryukin Williams, who's written a fascinating book called American Sutra. And that is about the experience of people who were interned in camps or sometimes fighting in World War II, not only as Japanese immigrants, Japanese Americans, but also as Buddhists living in a majority non-Buddhist country. And there are a number of things that our conversation touched on. For instance, I think we all have this kind of unconscious narrative about internment and how it came about. If you learn about it in grade school or middle school or high school, I think that the story we kind of tell ourselves is that, you know, people moved from Japan to the West Coast and, you know, Japanese folks were born in California and Oregon and Washington and elsewhere, and everything was going great until Pearl Harbor made everyone crazy. Then there was a wartime hysteria, and before you know it, the United States government is putting people in cages. But during our conversation, we talk about how that is not so. That internment was, on paper, racially neutral. Executive Order 9066 that FDR authorized to have people locked up uh, didn't mention people of Japanese descent. Internment, rather, was very much a creature of pre-existing prejudices. And these, on their face, neutral laws were put in place to justify the enactment of prejudices that were already out there. Another thing that we talked about, and we don't make this explicit, but it's very much there, is that we touch upon Japanese soldiers in World War II, both in the European theater, but also in the Pacific theater. And the Pacific theater is particularly fascinating. We talk about one guy who could be the star of his own World War II action spy thriller, but he and Japanese-American soldiers like him were instrumental in helping the United States during the war because they had the language skills necessary to interpret intercepted Japanese intelligence. If you are going to intercept Japanese codes or communications, well, you need people who speak Japanese. And the United States had that and benefited from it. And in this conversation, we talk about the U.S. reaping the benefits of being a multi-ethnic and multi-religious and multilinguistic, and just generally pluralistic democracy, reaping the benefits of that by having people who have the relevant cultural and linguistic background and using that to literally win a war, and meanwhile, at home, pushing back against being a multi-ethnic, multilinguistic, multi-religious, multi-everything democracy by locking people away and putting them in cages. Simultaneously benefiting from the contribution and heroism of Japanese-American soldiers out on the battlefield, and then denying the humanity of their friends and relatives, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, everyone in what is ostensibly their homeland. So it's a really interesting conversation. Williams was great to talk to, really knowledgeable guy. Uh, American Sutra is a 
fascinating and depressing look at an aspect of internment that you probably haven't thought about very much. But I've been talking. Here's Duncan Ryukin Williams. Duncan Ryukin Williams, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Joe. All right. So your new book is American Sutra. And uh, how would you sum up your project with this book? Uh, what's it about? So it's about the World War II uh, incarceration of Japanese Americans, over 110,000 people, uh, two-thirds of them American citizens, were rounded up by the U.S. government uh, in 10 large uh, internment camps. And uh, But the book comes from a very particular perspective about the role of uh, Buddhism uh, or religion in both how that incarceration uh, came about, that the government viewed this community, uh, not just uh, their racial difference uh, with the majority of the United States, but their religious difference with the United States, majority of the people in the United States, as a factor as to why uh, their incarceration was necessary. And then it also shows how that very thing that put them in camp, uh, their Buddhist faith, was what helped them survive those uh, very difficult years. So I think a lot of folks have probably heard about Japanese internment in uh, middle school or high school. And the idea that a lot of people might have is that you have this Japanese and Japanese American community uh, in the United States. And then suddenly there's Pearl Harbor and Franklin Roosevelt signs executive order 9066. And then suddenly everything changes. But in your book, you explicitly point out how that that's not exactly how it happened, that there was still a fair amount of suspicion and prejudice and discrimination uh, even before that. Uh, what shape did that take? Sure, that's right. I, I, I make this case in the book that, um, uh, you know, right after Pearl Harbor, even before the smoke had cleared, uh, the roundup of Japanese-American uh, community happens, uh, Japanese nationals as well as uh, uh, American citizens. And, uh, you know, the very first person who's picked up is a Buddhist priest, Gikyo Kuchiba. The second person picked up is another Buddhist priest. And uh, I explained that this didn't happen, uh, you know, out of, out of uh, a sudden sense of uh, a war emergency or hysteria or anything like that that had been planned for years prior to uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. The Pearl Harbor attack was a surprise to be sure. Uh, I think all the intelligence agencies had the Japanese Imperial Navy attacking uh, Manila and the Philippines, which they also did that day on December 7th, 1941. But, uh, the uh, idea that the United States would go to war with Japan eventually in the Pacific, that was almost a given in military intelligence circles uh, from as early as 1938. And so that was around the time when there was surveillance on Buddhist temples. Uh, there were uh, registries or lists of people to be arrested in case of war with Japan to uh, uh, kind of take in people who were uh, considered to be threats to national security. So that all happens right after Pearl Harbor um, into the spring of 1942. And as you just mentioned, uh, 
there's another process that happens uh, after President Roosevelt's issuance of Executive Order 9066 that gave the U.S. Army uh, discretion to round up anybody in the Western Defense Command Zone, which is basically the entire Pacific coast of the United States, that they deemed a threat to national security. And in that case, they ultimately uh, picked up more than 110,000 persons of Japanese ancestry. It didn't matter uh, whether you're Buddhist or whether you're Christian, whether you're uh, a little baby or whether you're a grandmother, whether you're a Japanese national or or American citizen. Uh, Everybody with, as one of the chief architects of the uh, U.S. Army program to round people up. Uh, Colonel Carl Bendiston said, if they have a single drop of Japanese blood, I want them in camp. And so that's that was the kind of totalistic uh, removal, uh, forced removal of everybody who was uh, uh, had any kind of like uh, Japanese ethnicity in their in their heritage were uh, removed to all of these uh, different camps in the interior. Uh, in the book, you talk about uh, the experience of people of Japanese descent who are Buddhist and also those who have uh, adopted Christianity. Uh, in what ways were those two experiences um, different? So in terms of how people experienced uh, the you know, incarceration, uh, initially they were put in these small what they euphemistically called assembly centers. There were usually former county fairgrounds or uh, horse stalls at a horse racing track, like in Santa Anita or uh, in Southern California or in Tamferan up in Northern California. And one of the things they were told was, you know, when you come in, you can, you, you can bring what you can carry. So for most families, that meant a single suitcase. And in that inspection, when they went in, Uh, One of the things they were told, one of the first uh, U.S. Army policies was that if you have anything written in the Japanese language, uh, like a Buddhist scripture or a, you know, even like a book of Japanese poems or something, that was going to be considered contraband uh, by the U.S. Army and therefore subject to confiscation. And so the only exception to that was if you had a Japanese language Bible, a Christian Bible, or a or a dictionary uh, that had both, you know, Japanese and English in it. And so that was their first, you know, message that they got from the U.S. government, that if you were, you know, trying to learn English, and if you were already converted to Christianity or in the process of converting to Christianity, that's what made you, you know, belong or be American. And if you were doing something else, that was, that was, uh, uh, you know, considered a threat enough to national security that uh, uh, you would need to get your, uh, you know, Buddhist scriptures and so forth um, confiscated as contraband. So that was that was the first step uh, of of that difference between how Buddhists and Christians were treated by the U.S. government uh, once they're in camp. And on the back end, there was something called the leave clearance form. Uh, they had this. Uh, army kind of like loyalty uh, questionnaire. And uh, one of the questions, and they they gave people like different points uh, as to whether they were more loyal or more disloyal and whether they they might be allowed to, for example, serve in the U.S. Army or whether they might be able to uh, 
uh, if you were a college student, for instance, at UC Berkeley or something, if you got a admission to an East Coast school outside of the Western Defense Command Zone, whether you'd be allowed out of camp to re-enroll in college and things like that, they had this, you know, uh, form where they asked people different questions to determine their loyalty. And question number 14 was on religion. If you answered Christian on that, you got plus two points. If you answered Shinto, you were automatically barred from leave clearance and getting out of camp. If you answered Buddhist, you got minus one point. Uh, so, you know, even during the war, the government continued to have this perspective that somehow being Christian was to be more American than being Buddhist. And that was something that this community, you know, over two thirds of whom were Buddhist, the majority were, vast majority were Buddhist, uh, they would get these sometimes very overt and sometimes less. Uh, less uh, overt messages about who counted as a, as a true American or a loyal American. One of the themes that comes up um, a few times in the book that I think was uh, interesting is you talk about how there were all kinds of measures that the United States government uh, put into effect, most notably Executive Order 9066, which on the face of them were neutral or did not call out specific what we would now call protected groups like religions or races or whatnot. But the practical effect of them is that they were implemented in a very discriminatory way and a very targeted way. So, yeah. So what you're saying is that um, even though the language of the law seemed like very sort of fair and legalistic, uh, its practice was anything but. That's exactly right. So I think, you know, with executive orders of this type, uh, the president is not going to be issuing them without legal guidance from uh, the Department of Justice. And so uh, on the face of it, there's nothing about Japan or Japanese Americans, uh, you know, articulated in the executive order that Roosevelt issued, it just gives the U.S. Army discretion to put whoever they deem uh, necessary uh, to, uh, uh, as a threat to national security and uh, to, uh, to essentially, uh, 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 on the face of it, look legally neutral. And then, uh, you know, there, I, I quote a memo in the, in, the, in the book from then Attorney General Francis Biddle to Roosevelt saying, and this is his words, not mine, uh, this is meant just for the Japs, right? And so it was, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, just to further clarify that uh, the army uh, would only target one, you know, ethnic or racial group. Uh, the United States was also, of course, at war with Germany and Italy at that time. Uh, and there was... Uh, the initial roundup of enemy aliens who uh, I mentioned earlier about right after Pearl Harbor, that happened to some German nationals who happened to have an affiliation with the Nazi party or some Italian nationals who would link to the fascist party in, in, in Italy. But there was no mass roundup of all German Americans or all Italian Americans in the same way. Uh, as as what what uh, came out of this executive order, so 
I think it's it's true to say that uh, you know they're going to try to write it in a way that passes constitutional muster. Uh, that when it's challenged, for example, up into the Supreme Court, like Korematsu versus the United States, that it, there's nothing in the executive order that people can point to that say uh, this is a discriminatory. Uh, law that has animus towards one particular race or one particular religion. Uh, but, uh, you know, the intention behind the scenes was quite clear. What was the lived experience of people practicing Buddhism in the camps like? How did folks go about marking observances such as, you know, holidays or funerals or, you know, other things like that? What shape did that take? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the people, you know, having only the ability to take one suitcase with them often didn't have, you know, if, if you can imagine, like, you have to go through your apartment or house and figure out what are you going to take to a location unknown for a time indeterminate. And so a lot of people didn't take religious articles with them. And so, but in that circumstance of finding themselves in, dislocation and loss. Many people did turn to their faith, including Buddhist faith, uh, for the majority of the people, uh, Christian faith in, for, for those who are Christian. Uh, and they tried to make do uh, with what was present in those camps, often in these very uh, remote desert environments. And so let me just share one, you know, example of a, of, a, of you know, this kind of creativity that people would use like desert wood uh, that they would find to make Buddhist altars so that they could have, for example, a kind of a barrack, one of these army barracks that could be designated as a Buddhist temple in camp. Uh, they would make, for example, for the Buddha's birthday uh, in April 1942, Buddha's birthday is always celebrated uh, in, in April in the Japanese Buddhist tradition. Um, just like, you know, Christians celebrate Christmas always in December. So in, 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 in April, they, they, needed a, they needed a statue of the baby Buddha, which they would normally uh, pour some uh, uh, sweet tea on as a kind of ritual uh, celebration of the legend of the Buddha's birth that talks about how when the Buddha was born, the heavens were so happy that it rained like the sweet rain. And so they didn't have any sweet tea, but they had army rationed uh, coffee and sugar. So they made a, a drink like that. And then they, and, and the gentleman went to the mess hall and found the largest carrot that he could find and carved a baby Buddha statue out of it so that they would have some, you know, they could pour that sweet coffee over the carrot Buddha. So that kind of thing where, where people were at a time in their life where they were really disoriented, felt you know, uh, that their government were, had, had targeted them to, to, to uh, again, for a time unknown, like how long is this going to, this incarceration going to last? It's not like, you know, usually if you're an American citizen, before you put behind barbed wire or any kind of imprisonment, you have the opportunity under due process to, 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 to be judged by your peers and to have a sentence that has a, some kind of you know, uh, time limit on it. These people were in this very uh, difficult circumstance where they had no idea how long they would be in there. And, and obviously they hadn't 
particularly committed any crime or anything. Uh, so they're in this very difficult emotional situation. And I think for them, uh, Buddhism served as a refuge of sorts to help give them some direction, some orientation, and, and, and uh, being able to, even in this kind of like crude way, uh, reenact Buddhist rituals uh, like the Buddhist birthday or other kind of rituals. That was a really important thing, uh, including for families who had, for example, not only lost everything they worked so hard for before the war, uh, but in camp lost family members uh, because of these hastily built tar paper barracks where if you're in the desert and it's so hot during the day, so cold at night, and these aren't very well built and you have holes in them everywhere, the very frail, the elderly and the babies, that first winter and spring passed away. And so for those families, Buddhism and the ability to perform Buddhist funerals and memorial services became a really important thing to give some kind of uh, solace and, and, and refuge to people. Um, another major wartime experience that you write about is uh, Japanese-American soldiers, um, well, joining the military. So, yeah. yeah, what role did... So first off, <laughs> I think that that is just an amazing story in and of itself that anyone would join the American military while members of their community and family are being incarcerated against their will. And also, uh, what role did Buddhism play uh, on the battlefield? You know, they often have that saying that uh, you don't find atheists in a foxhole. But mm -hmm. the idea of, uh, you know, going into combat duty, uh, on the one hand, uh, a total of 33,000 uh, Japanese-Americans served in the U.S. Armed Forces during World War II. And so on the one hand, they went, uh, the vast majority of them, into a segregated unit. At that time, the U.S. Army had bl like black units and, 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 and this kind of segregated uh, idea. And so they put all of the Japanese-Americans into this uh, unit initially called the 100th Battalion and ultimately uh, called the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. It, it ends up through their campaign in Italy, France, and Germany, always put on the front lines. And so they, the media at that time would dub them the Purple Heart Battalion because they would always you know, get, get, have so many people uh, killed in action or wounded in action. And so at that time, when you're on those front lines in combat situations, uh, I think people drew on their faith, people... Uh, 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 to you know, where they have you know people who've fallen next to them, uh, they want to make sure that their buddy is given a proper, you know, uh, respect and 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 religious right. And so, one of the big battles that took place was, you know, would there be in the U.S. Army, you know, Buddhist chaplains? Because the vast majority of these people who served were Buddhists would they assign a Buddhist chaplain to the unit? Would they, for example, also put B on the dog tag so that when somebody died, you knew what kind of uh, religious right to, 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 to do? Because um, at that time, you could either get a C uh, for Catholic, P for Protestant, H for Hebrew or Jewish. And, uh, and, and people were told, you know, you have to uh, pick one of these three. 
And uh, so a lot of Buddhist soldiers uh, end up picking one of them. And uh, there's this one story I write, up, write about in the book where, uh, you know, when they first register you and you need to get a dog tag and they ask you for your blood type and then your religion and different things like that. One soldier said, hey, I want to get a B on my dog tag uh, for Buddhist and was told, you know, we don't have Buddhists in the U.S. Army. It was the answer that came back. And so he said, okay, I'll pick P. Uh, and the, the guy asks him, you know, so why'd you pick P? And he goes like, well, because I protest. And then <laughs> so it, people had these kind of like somewhat, you know, f- you know, humorous things to try to get, uh, get, get a point across. Uh, but, you know, there was those who served in Europe in the segregated unit. Ultimately, this unit becomes the most decorated unit in of its size and length of service in, in all of, not just World War II history, but all of U.S. Army history. It becomes a very decorated unit. Um, and then another group of about 6,000 served in the Pacific in the military intelligence service, uh, translating documents from Japanese to English, interrogating prisoners, doing code breaking. Um, under um, General MacArthur, uh, uh, Lieutenant General Charles uh, Willoughby at the end of the war, uh, made an assessment that these 6,000 Japanese Americans who served in the Pacific, uh, he said, saved over a million lives, American lives, and shortened the war by two years because of their work. And so that's another very interesting thing was that the vast majority of that group, uh, almost 90% of them, uh, were also Buddhists, uh, in part because the Japanese language in the in the Japanese American community was taught by uh, Buddhist temples. They had these Japanese language schools, and these were initially seen as, you know, un-American or even anti-American. That 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 you'd have Buddhist temples, and that they'd be speaking, you know, not English but Japanese, or or you know, becoming bilingual. But it turns out, ironically, that those were precisely the type of people who would, you know, advance the U.S. cause in the Pacific uh, 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 because they were bilingual, they were bicultural, uh, and, and, and they could understand uh, what a prisoner was going through to get information out of them and so forth. So, uh, so there's multiple ironies. There's that kind of irony, and then, as you said, uh, for example, out of camp, leaving behind your parents, your siblings to go and serve a country that's put your family behind uh, barbed wire. Um, if we could indulge in maybe like calling out one, um, you know, one service member in particular, uh, you mentioned Richard Sakakita, who has yeah. one of the most dramatic stories uh, in the entire book. And could we maybe spend like a minute or two about who he sure. was and what happened with him? Because that, that part, just blew me away. You know, he's a fascinating guy. He, before the war, he had the opportunity to get a full scholarship to go uh, and be the first Japanese American to get a full ride scholarship at West Point. Uh, he had been a leading uh, cadet in the ROTC and uh, he had that opportunity. He also had a separate opportunity to ha- again, have a full scholarship to go to Kyoto, Japan to become a Buddhist priest his family is a very devout Buddhist uh, family, and uh, uh, the, the bishop of that particular sect of Buddhism really thought he'd be a great 
representative of uh, an American born. Uh, so he would have been the first American born uh, Buddhist priest uh, if he had taken that option, or he would have been the first Japanese American to serve uh, or train through uh, West Point. But he ultimately declines both. But uh, he's he's uh, in the picture to be recruited for this, uh, the counterintelligence corps uh, uh, just before the war breaks out. Uh, he ultimately signs up for uh this U.S. Army unit where he's involved as, 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 a, as a spy for the, an intelligence officer for the U.S. Army. And he's in Manila uh, in the Philippines uh, uh, sending intelligence reports back to uh, uh, his, his uh, superiors, and he's, he's an amazing asset. But, of course, after Pearl Harbor and Manila fall on December 7th, uh, the the he gets captured and basically it's like a hollywood story he's he's like captured by the japanese he's tortured by the japanese uh he attributes his uh surviving those terrible tortures uh to both his buddhist faith as well as his what he calls his yankee spirit and he kind of marries the two things together to survive that torture and then eventually he like sends out intelligence even from within uh, through Filipino guerrillas. He engineers a prison break and escape of uh, Filipino guerrilla leaders. He ultimately escapes himself uh, into the jungle. Uh, he goes through all kinds of adventures in the, in the jungle before he finally comes across U.S. troops. Uh, again, he doesn't know, you know if the, that the war has actually already ended. The American troops think he's a Japanese straggler from the Imperial Army, uh, et cetera. But ultimately, he comes and becomes assigned by General MacArthur as the head of the war crimes tribunal in all of the Philippines to investigate all the horrific things that the Japanese Imperial Army had done to Allied soldiers. And he ultimately comes into contact with the three members of the Kempeitai, the Japanese military police that had tortured him. And... Anyway, there's this whole scene I write about in the book where he, he ultimately uh, reveals who he is. They are like, you can kill us on the spot, and but he forgives them because he remembers this line from his upbringing as a Buddhist uh, about the Buddha teaching that you can't uh, uh, you know, extinguish fire with fire, but only with water. And in the same way, you can't extinguish hatred with hatred, but only with love. And so he ultimately forgives them. And so anyway, it's a story about kind of that crystallization of this idea that you can be both Buddhist and American at the same time. And, 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 and somebody going through a war experience, kind of drawing on that kind of rebellious Yankee spirit, but also uh, his Buddhist faith. Yeah, that, that whole section was, yeah, you're right. It's, it's absolutely like a movie. Um, it was, I had never heard of that guy before. And that was uh, amazing to read about. Uh, what was the post-war experience like for the people that you write about? You know, so I think for most people who had, of course, come from the Pacific Coast, California, Oregon, Washington State, uh, from the, for, that, for that community to return to their pre-war homes, uh, some families, you know, found that they had no ability to, you know, get back into their uh, old homes, uh, the neighbors didn't want them back. Uh, they had trouble 
with not only housing, but getting employment. Nobody wanted to employ these Japanese Americans that had come back from camp. So some people say, you know, the experience of returning uh, to a community that they hoped, you know, was, you know, was their former community at home and finding the, all of that hostility that I guess in some sense is not surprising, the kind of persecution of the Pacific War and what the Japanese Imperial Army, Army did in the Pacific had hardened the minds of many people in the community uh, and they weren't as welcoming to uh, these uh, people that, again, through no fault of their own, were, had been in these internment camps during the war. But so they, they struggled to, to reintegrate and there were you know, very, some very kind individuals I talk about in the book who, who uh, offered assistance in terms of housing or in terms of jobs. And, uh, and of course, the Buddhist temple becomes one of these, uh, they call it hostels, but these kind of like refuges for people uh, where the temple uh, not only is giving spiritual sustenance and guidance, but also just very practically serving as a hostel or a place that people can stay while they try to find permanent housing and employment. And so the rebuilding of the Buddhist temple was very much integrated into the rebuilding of the Japanese American uh, community after the war. Is there anything that we haven't gotten to um, that you want about the book that you want to speak to? You know, you, you, your questions are great. I, uh, you covered a lot of different ground, uh, the military, what happened in the camps, uh, and, uh, and, uh, these, uh, uh, various chapters of the book. So I really appreciate the thoroughness in which, uh, you ask these questions. Thank you. Uh, where can people find a book? Uh, so the book is, you know, uh, you can buy it, uh, from Harvard university press as a publisher, uh, but also at your local bookstore, uh, and, um, uh, of course online, whether it's, uh, amazon.com, pals.com. Uh, as well. So uh, uh, it, it's, it's definitely out there. All right. Duncan Ryukin Williams, thank you very much for talking with us today. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. Appreciate it. All right, everyone. Uh, hope that was illuminating. Uh, as always, uh, we're on Apple Podcasts and go and give us stars, reviews, the rest of it. That really helps the show out and helps other people discover the Weird History Podcast. Uh, do that on Apple Podcasts. Do that on your podcatcher of choice. I'm on social media. Uh, I am on Twitter at Joe Streckert at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. The show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weird history podcast. A number of people have already asked me about the show's new business model. That is coming soon. I will have more information for you next episode. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.